today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. It was determined by the Jews, kind of a concept of the culture of the ancient Jews is, if somebody is dead three days, they're not just mostly dead, they are dead, okay? Remember when Jesus came to Lazarus, he had been dead for four days. Why did the Lord tarry? Because he was busy doing other things? No, because he wanted to show everyone, no, Lazarus was really, really completely dead dead before he raised him from the dead. These were here for three and a half days. They made it past the three-day mark, three and a half days, and then the Lord gives them life. This is why I don't think it's symbolic. I don't think it's metaphorical. Do you ever wonder what the significance of certain numbers are in the Bible? As we study God's Word, we learn He ties everything together in an amazing way. Today, Pastor David talks with us about people being raised from the dead. Why were they dead for three days? It confirms their death. Dead is dead after a few days. If they were raised from the dead right after they died, many would try to say they weren't actually dead. This way, them being raised from the dead is a definite miracle from God. Well, let's join Pastor David in the book of Revelation chapter 10 with today's edition of The Open Word. It's a book that literally nightmares are made of. You see all these bees. And somebody was talking last week after we finished talking about the locusts who are actually scorpions and sting you. And they got these teeth and they got the hair of a woman, the face of a man. It said, I'm going to have nightmares from here on in. But that's part of the bitterness of this work of prophecy. And John was given that. And he says, you've got to prophesy again. John, you're not finished. It's so easy when you think, well, hey, if they're not going to hear me, then forget them, forget them. But you know what? We don't have that option. None of us, even today, have that option. We might say, well, I don't want to share my faith with that guy or that gal at work. I don't want to share my faith with my neighbor. They're never going to listen to me. You don't know that. You don't know what God might be working in their heart. And you know what? Even if they don't hear you, your call is to give reason for the hope that's within you. Your call, the command of the Lord, is to, again, be ready in season and out of season, and to be able to share that hope and to share that faith. Think of the ministry of of Jeremiah, the prophet. Jeremiah, for 40 years, talk about zero church growth, you know. It's like, man, we, we, we don't have anything. There were no converts in all of Jeremiah's ministry. And over and over and over, he was even in prison for it. Again, but God says, no, you go tell them. Okay, they didn't listen to that. I want you to go and do this now. They didn't listen to that. Now, I want you to go and do this now. I want you to humble yourself in some of the most bizarre ways and show again who I am before this people and who this people are before me. You go show them, Jeremiah. Lord, they're not listening to me. 
I've been doing this like for 20 years. They're not listening to me. And I think for him, no, you've got to go and prophesy again. And now for John, all of these things happened, all of these plagues, all of those that were killed, and they had not repented. They continue on in their worship of demons and idols of gold, of silver, of brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. They continued on in their murderers and their sorceries and their sexual immorality and their thefts. And God says, John, go tell them again. Go tell them again. Chapter 11 It says, and I, John is saying this, I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it's been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. In other words, three and a half years. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. I'll look at the witnesses in a moment. But first of all, let's look at this idea of measuring. Take a measuring rod and go and measure the temple. This is a last days event, okay? You realize that, that this is all a last days event. And it's really interesting in reading in preparation for this, some of the commentators that were writing before the mid-1900s, they're saying, well, all of this is allegorical. All of this is symbolic. And they're trying to, again, jump through hoops to make any of this make sense. Why? because Israel wasn't a nation at that point in time, because there was not a temple over in Israel for them to measure. They were started saying, no, this is the spiritual house of the Lord. We are now the temple of the Lord. But it doesn't work. It doesn't fit in any of this. I believe that what John is given to measure is the third temple, the one that has not been built yet. It's really interesting when you look at this. When you look at it as figurative, There's so many hoops that you've got to jump through. There's so many twists and turns to make it make any sense at all. And yet when you look at it literal, the only problem is, is there's not a temple there yet. And how in the world are they going to be able to build a temple right now with the Muslim Dome of the Rock and the the mosque there that's on the same site up on the Temple Mound? Well, it's very interesting. If you get a chance to go to Israel, up on the Temple Mound, just north of the Dome of the Rock, there is the Shrine of the Spirits. The Shrine of the Spirits is it's very small, maybe about a, uh, about a 10 by 10 space. But in the, it's got a little canopy over the top of it. And inside of it, on the bottom, it's wide open, but in the middle of it, there is a piece of rock. And they say that that is actually bedrock of the Temple Mound. The other portion of bedrock is actually located inside the Dome of the Rock. A lot of research and and looking through, a lot of people have looked and said, no, the temple was located right where the Dome of the Rock, right where the Muslims have their shrine built. And the Dome of the Rock is not a mosque, it's a shrine. 
And as long as that's there, the Jews will never be able to build the third temple. That's got to be destroyed. So again, they're going to have to go and tear that down. Well, you know that would start World War III right there. There's like no way that that's going to happen. However, the Shrine of the Spirits, just north of that, there is space actually still on the Temple Mound that if that Shrine of the Spirits and that bedrock how cool that would be if that was really where the Holy of Holies was located. You see, it's a lot of speculation because we don't have the layout. All of that was totally wiped out, totally wiped out by the Romans in 70 AD. And so through the years, they've come back through, well, that must have been where the Holy of Holies is, where the Dome of the Rock is. No, there's another place and the situation, how it's situated, it's not situated right in the center of the space of the land. No, it's situated off to the side where in the Holy of Holies, if that was the place where it was, it would have been in the backside of the temple proper, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. Another interesting thing is that Shrine of the Spirits is right directly across what's known as the Eastern Gate, right exactly across from it. So there's a lot of stuff that could play. And when you look at this and he says, leave out the court which is outside the temple, do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. Do you think that maybe a man of peace could come and say, look, you guys keep your Dome of the Rock, the Muslim shrine. You keep your mosque, which is further, just to the south of that. And we'll give this portion here for the Jews. They're not going to build the whole temple complex. All they're going to do is build the holy place and the holy of holies within that. And there's plenty of room there. And then it would face directly to the eastern gate at that point in time. Very, very interesting and in all of that. He says, for all of this, the Gentiles, they're going to tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And again, even as we shared back in Daniel in chapter 12, the, the three and a half years, we also see it in Daniel chapter 9, beginning of verse 27. He says, then he, speaking of the Antichrist, he's going to make this covenant with many for one week. Seven, think of that, seven days. Thinking of that as seven years. In the middle of that week, three and a half days or three and a half years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So in other words, Israel has to have the temple place built to where they will be rebuilding or redoing sacrifices again. And the Antichrist is going to allow them to do that for three and a half years. And after that, then we're going to find out a little bit later as we look at this, Antichrist comes in and sets himself up in that temple and again demands worship to him. That's the abomination that makes it desolate, even to the consummation which is determined, abomination of desolation that we'll look at as we get further into Revelation. So we see it laid out. Again, the players being put in place so that when we get to that place a little bit later on, we'll see this has all been planned, this has all been worked out. Now we get to this deal of these two witnesses in verse 3. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for three and a half years clothed in sackcloth. Interesting. Who are these two witnesses? Again, there's a whole lot of speculation who they might be. John doesn't give us names. 
So this is not a make it or break it deal. This is not a solid deal. I look at them, and for me, it seems like Moses and Elijah. Listen to what these do. He says, these are two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this matter. And these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. They have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with plagues as often as they desire. There's a lot of similarities, Elijah being the prophet of fire. And so these guys speak and fire comes out of their mouth. They come against them, man, that's the same way they devour their enemies. They come and they do these plagues, again, turning the water into blood, stopping the rain. Remember, it was Elijah before Ahab stopped the rain for three years there. So we see all of these things. Could it possibly be? It could possibly be. Could it maybe not be? Well, maybe it's not. But it's interesting when you look at these, there's a lot of similarities. Well, what's this whole deal about the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth? Really interesting, very similar to a setting that we actually see in Zechariah. Take and turn back there, if you would, chapter 4 of Zechariah. It's interesting, as Zechariah is preaching here, as he's giving the word, the Lord gives him a vision in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, he says, Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, Well, I'm, I'm looking, and there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. On the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other is on the left. And so I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? And verse 5, then the angel who talked with me answered and says, do you not know what these are? And I said, well, no, my Lord. And verse 6, so he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel was given the responsibility of rebuilding the temple. Okay, There was Zerubbabel, who was the political leader of the time, and then there was Joshua, who was the religious leader of the time, who was the priest at that time. So as the word of the Lord is coming to Zechariah, the Lord wants to encourage Zerubbabel in the work. He says, hey, it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit. Well, how does that all deal with the lampstands and the olive trees? Symbolic that the lampstands, in order for them to stay burning, again, it was symbolic of the Spirit of God, okay, with the lamps burning, symbolic of the Spirit. But what did the lampstands need in order to keep burning? They needed oil. And now here we have this vision of these olive trees that are connected right to these lampstands. So again, symbolic of this never-ending flow of oil. Oil also symbolic of the Spirit of God. It's just that word of the Lord saying, my spirit is going to be enough, Zerubbabel, for you to keep going, for you to keep building against all of the enemies. It's not going to be by your might. It's not going to be by your power. So with that in mind, we look back at these guys and says, these two, 
back in Revelation chapter 11, speaking of the two witnesses, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. I believe that what he's speaking about is not only the power and the authority of these two witnesses. It's the very thing worked in Zerubbabel's life. They are symbolic again of that might, that power, that authority of God. Here now, not coming as evangelists to the world, but actually they're coming as witnesses to give testimony against the world. Because here they are. They're not proclaiming. They're not prophesying. They're looking and viewing, and they see all that's going on. And what do we find that's going to happen to them? Well, in verse 7, it says that when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Interesting here, that great city, it's called Sodom, it's called Egypt, but it's also where our Lord was crucified. Okay, we know that our Lord was crucified in Jerusalem, just outside the city gates of Jerusalem. So where do you get Sodom and where do you get Egypt? Sodom represents just the wickedness, the perversion of humanity. All you got to do is go back to the end of chapter 9. You see that man is still involved in that. Do you think it's affecting Jerusalem? Oh, yeah, it affects the entire world. Egypt represents political power, political authority. There's authority, there's power that's going on here. So their dead bodies are going to lay in Jerusalem filled with perversity of a Sodom, all the sin of the world, build also as a place of political power and authority in that day. And they're going to let their bodies lay on the streets. It says their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually, is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord is crucified. And then those from the Peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. Now, let's take this real quick. Allegorically speaking, this is like you know the testimony of God. This is probably like the law and the prophets that they're just going to do away with the law and the prophets. They're not going to pay any attention to it, and they're just going to throw it away and not even care about it for three and a half years. I don't believe that that's really the case because what we're also going to see is, you know what? The Lord is going to raise them back up to life again. Listen to what it says. They're not going to allow their bodies to be put into the graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. They will make merry. And they will even send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. The righteous testimony of these, not in an evangelical way, but just in the proclamation of who they were and the testimony of their lives. It was tormenting to those who, again, rejected the truth. And so when they did kill them, when the beast killed them, they rejoiced. They were happy about it. They let the bodies just lay there. You know what? As I'm watching the news right now and what's going on in the Middle East, man, I could see this happening. 
I could see this. Man, they're rejoicing. They're dancing all over. They're saying they're so excited that these two are dead. They're sending gifts to each other. For three and a half days, they stayed there, and they are celebrating. Well, is that three and a half days? Isn't that symbolic of three and a half years? I don't think so. I don't think the body would stay there for three and a half years. I think it's probably three and a half days, just in a very logical, looking at it as literal as you can. But then what happens in verse 11? Now, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, And they stood to their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. I guess so. It was determined by the Jews, kind of a concept of the culture of the ancient Jews is, if somebody is dead three days, they're not just mostly dead, they are dead, okay? Remember when Jesus came to Lazarus, he had been dead for four days. Why did the Lord tarry? Because he was busy doing other things? No. Because he wanted to show everyone, no, Lazarus was really, really completely dead before he raised him from the dead. These were here for three and a half days. They made it past the three-day mark. Three and a half days, and then the Lord gives them life. This is why I don't think it's symbolic. I don't think it's metaphorical. I don't think it's allegorical. I think that it's real, that there's these two witnesses that are there. Their lives were taken by the beast. For three and a half days, they laid on the streets, and people celebrated because they were no more the torment. No more, hey, I don't want the righteousness around me because my deeds are so wicked. Don't shine your light into my life because you'll see the imperfections. They were glad that they were dead. And then God raises them back up to life. And all of those that were celebrating, all of those that were making merry, Fear fell upon them. No kidding. No kidding. Verse 12. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And then there is this, again, this rapture thing that takes place. They ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. And in that very same hour, that very same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, wait a minute, pastor. You mean now there's a conversion going on? I don't believe so. I believe that they recognized that it was God, but their hearts were so far from it. See if you follow along with me. And again, if you don't agree with me on that, that's okay. You can find another church. But uh, no, just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Think of it this way. You see sports people. Hey, the guy makes a touchdown. You know, hey, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Then after the game, he cares nothing about God in his life. He goes and parties down with all the rest. You think that maybe they see this going on? Well, man, that that was God. But I'm not bowing my heart to him. I'm not giving my life to him. I'm not repenting. I don't see any repentance here at all. As a matter of fact, we pretty well see that there is no more repentance from this point in. Just the wickedness of man that goes through. It says that in that very hour, this earthquake came. Tenth of the city fell. That very hour, this earthquake came, 7,000 people were killed. The rest were afraid. And then verse 14, 
second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. All of this that's taken place, and yet there's one more. The letters to the churches found in Revelation 2 and 3 repeat the phrase, to the one who overcomes, followed with a promise centered in God's goodness to his people. What does overcoming look like for you today? Maybe it's just getting up in the morning, getting dressed, and going out into life. Maybe it's continuing to sing his praises even through a tough circumstance. Maybe overcoming today is holding on to that small hope that tomorrow can be a better day in your marriage. Take some time today to check out those promises, remembering to hold on to Jesus because he is our hope. We're so glad you tuned in today to The Open Word. We know that life is tough, but doing life in community can make even the hardest situation more bearable. With that in mind, here's Pastor David with an invitation for you. Hey, if you're in the Casa Grande area and you're looking for a church to attend, I'd love to have you join us here at Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. At 6.30 p.m., we meet on Wednesday evenings and Saturday evenings. You can find directions and a little more about the church by visiting theopenword.com. Follow the links at the bottom of the page to Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande. I'm excited to have you be a part of our time of Bible study and fellowship. Our website, one more time, is theopenword.com. Information about the church is at the bottom of that page, the link for Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande. Thanks, Pastor David. With that, our time with you has come to an end. Pastor David still has much to share, though, so be sure to tune in again to continue walking verse by verse through Revelation. That's right here on The Open Word. Make-